Okay, so where are we <laughs> in this story? We, Terry did such a fabulous job last week of reminding us of the covenant, and that is so important when we, when we get bogged down in, in details in this, in this story. I wanted to pull the, pull the lens out a le- even a little bit broader and just go, go back and remind us of the whole story. I know you won't be able to see this, unfortunately. But um, this is from a book by... Um, we can pull it back a little bit more. That'll make, it, that'll make it a little bit bigger. I still don't know if you'll be able to see too much. Yeah. We don't need to see the big picture. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Let's see. Oops. Let me get under it for focus. Does that help at all? Okay. All right. So this is from a, a book called God's Big Picture. I think it's out on the table, or it is occasionally. We may, we may run out. But here, here is the whole deal. The Bible is a story about a king, the one true king, right, who created the world, the universe, every, everything that's in it. And the Bible tells us how it all goes. So it's a king with his kingdom, and he, you know, creates mankind in the first um, well, creation and the man, mankind the first couple of chapters of course in the garden of eden so in the beginning we have the king dwelling with his people in his place which was the garden of eden and then of course we know they fell they succumbed to the evil one's temptation and they fell and god kicked them out and so the thought of the kingdom perished but then he immediately promised to make everything right again. And so then the story progresses here. He chooses another man, Abraham. Genesis 12 is a very key chapter in the Bible to know where it is. Try, try it. Maybe. Oh, thanks. Good. Um, right. So Genesis 12, God chooses another man to kind of start over with and he you know make promises to be his god his king and create a people for him and give him a place and them a place right and so then we have um that coming to pass right and then the people again are kicked out of the land because of their rebellion right but all that time the prophets are promising that there's going to be restoration, it's, it's coming, right? But they didn't really all grasp what God was doing. And then, you know, Jesus comes, and with him comes the kingdom of God. He said uh, when he came, you know, his first recorded words are repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So the kingdom of God is coming back. So we got the present kingdom. Then he is crucified and rises again and then ascends to the Father and he leaves the message to proclaim with the apostles, his authoritative witnesses. And so then the kingdom is proclaimed that it's still here, but it's not totally here, right? And so then the kingdom at one point in the fullness of time when God decides 
the kingdom will then be perfected. So this is the whole, the whole big picture. Sorry, I don't have a fancy remote, right? So here is a, a great chart that describes how everything fits into this pattern. God's people, God's place, under God's rule, receiving his blessing. Adam and Eve, garden, God's word, they have his word directly fellowshipping with him in perfect relationships with him, with each other in, in the garden. And then there's no people because they've rebelled, right? They're banished. Um, God's rule, blessing, well, rebelling against God's rule and receiving his curse and not his blessing. Then Abraham's descendants, Canaan, uh, blessing to Israel and the nation. And here we are at the partial kingdom, right? Um, the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled here, right? God's people, the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, have been brought into the land of Canaan, although they haven't completely conquered it all this time, right? And then today we have the king taking um, God's city for him. Temple comes up in kings. We don't get quite that far, Um and then people are being ruled by God's king with God's law. So this is where we are in the story now. We always have to bear in mind where, where we are and remember that the end. This isn't the stopping point, you know. Um, okay, so when we finished uh, last week, Terry actually kind of went into five, which was totally fine, but... Um, you know, Ishbosheth had been uh, assassinated, and so then there is no more king left but David. And so the, the elders of Israel come to him. Of course, this is uh, Hebron had been David's capital. And now here is Jebus or Jerusalem on the border lands between um, Benjamin and Judah, right? So that's where we were, and now the whole land is going to be united under David. And so here's what we have in 5 and 6. Okay, this is a big way to think of these two chapters and what's happening here. We have God's king under God's direction, which you've seen a couple of times in the, in the verses here, how the Lord has done this, how the Lord directed David. We have God's king under God's direction, securing God's place in chapter 5 and God's presence in chapter 6 for God's people. Okay? So, um, chapter 5 is probably not chronological. It's just... Sorry. Sorry. Uh-huh. So... Um, Chapter 5 is just kind of snippets here and there, probably not chronological. I can't remember if Kay said that in the, in the study or not. But um, if you think about this, if David takes Jerusalem, and then it says in verse um, 17 of 5, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. So if they knew he was in Jerusalem, they wouldn't have to go search for him. So pr- probably the, the, the um, battles with the Philistines came before David took. So, you know, just, just so you know, it's not necessarily chronological. 
So under God's direction, he remembered to inquire of the Lord this time, right? David defeats the Philistines. If any of you have an ESV study Bible, this is, this is in there. This is where these came from. So this is the, you know, the insert here. So he shoves them back, right? They've been kind of creeping in, right? Here's the Valley of Rephaim or whatever, very close here to Jerusalem, right? So he pushes them back. And then he feels that this is the right time to go in and conquer the Jebusites and secure this, secure this city. Um, then here's that. Sorry, say that again. The Valley of Rephaim is Boy. Anybody see Beersheba on this one? Uh, I probably have to get to a more detailed map. You have it in your... Um, all right. So there's just a little just a little map also in the um, ESV study Bible. All right. Um, here's the, the water tunnel. And, and we're not exactly sure if David sent men up through the water shaft or whether they cut off the water supply, not necessarily sure how it exactly went, but somehow or other that was, that was used to capture the city. Um, it's interesting that, um, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this. Let me not interrupt my train of thought here. Okay, so Jerusalem. Um, in De- Deuteronomy 12, and if you want to take notes, sorry, I didn't do you a printout, so if you want to take notes. In Deuteronomy 12, before the people of Israel go into the promised land, Moses is telling them in, in Deuteronomy 12 that, he, that the Lord will, is going to designate a city where he is to be worshipped. So I'll just read that. These are the statutes and rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, then the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Um, So then um, what I'd like to do now is then just trace for you the city of Jerusalem all through the scripture so that we see how it plays out. There's a historical city of Jerusalem that the Bible very clearly talks about, but there's also an ideal city that's talked about differently. So we'll, we'll go through that. Um, so it's variously called Jerusalem or Jebus or however you want to pronounce it in Hebrew, 
right, on the border between Judah and Benjamin, like I was, like I was saying. The first reference is actually in Genesis 14, 18, um, where uh, King Melchizedek is from. He's the king of Salem, right, and he comes out to meet uh, Abraham after he has defeated the people who took Lot, right, and Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was the king of the most high God and he gave tithes to him, right? So in this city at that time, the one true God was worshipped and led and worshipped by King Melchizedek who also figures very prominently later on in the, in the scriptures. Then the next we hear about it quite a bit in uh, Joshua 10, 12, 15, 18. I wrote those up there for you if you just want to go take a peek. Um, the king of Jerusalem comes out and tries to, you know, he allies himself with several kings and tries to defeat uh, the Israelites and this and that. But as it turns out, the, the city, it's in the list of both the cities that belong to Judah and the cities that belong to Benjamin. So, you know, I guess occupied by both, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, but neither the Judites nor the Benjaminites could defeat these Canaanite people that lived there. So they were tolerated for now a long time, you know, hundreds of years. But David comes in under God's direction and he takes the city, right? Uh, we don't have in scripture where it, God actually tells David, this is the city that I want, but somehow or other it comes out that this is the city that God wants his name to dwell in, where he wants his people to worship at this point. David takes the city with ease, right? So Jerusalem, the, there, there's, a, there's a book that I read. Uh, it's actually <laughs> lifting the, the um, projector up here by Desmond Alexander <laughs> called From Eden to the New Jerusalem. It's a really, really good book. Eden was supposed to be the place where God dwelt with his people. And then from there, he told Adam and Eve to fill the earth, right? So God's kingdom was supposed to expand and, and, and fill the earth. And things just got messed up. So then the land of Canaan then becomes the place where God dwells with his people. And they were to be a light to the nations and God's word, his worship, right, was supposed to expand from there, but, you know, that gets messed up. So Jerusalem becomes this temple city, like Eden should have been, where God dwells. And it's sort of, according to uh, Alexander, a miniature in what God intends for the whole world. And then I've written down some Psalms for you that all refer to Jerusalem so that you can see it's really huge role in scripture 48 87 132 and 33 and 147 and then alexander says however if jerusalem is to reflect god's creation blueprint then its citizens needed to be exceptionally holy well we continue to trace the history of the city of Jerusalem throughout the, the Old Testament, we find it to be very rebellious. Um, Isaiah talks quite a bit about that. Um, Jeremiah 2, I guess. But So ultimately, 
the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the people are carted off for uh, 70 years and then they are recalled to the promised land and Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild Jerusalem to some degree and then the whole rest of the Old Testament is still we're dealing with rebellious people who aren't really following the Lord according to his law right and then Jesus comes and he is rejected by Jerusalem right he weeps over them right he um when he's going in uh before that his final week he says you know would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes right he was he's grieving over over jerusalem and then uh, actually in the next couple of verses from there he uh, he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, so they're kicked out again, right? Um, God judging continually His people for their rebellion, their refusal to accept Him. So the the thing is that what they didn't get is that Jesus had become the place where God was to be worshipped and met. He tried to tell them that. Remember he told, uh, I guess it was the um, just crowds that he was teaching or the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up. Right? And then the woman at the well, when he's talking to her, right, he tells her there's going to come a day when we're not going to worship at Mount Gerizim, we're not going to worship in Jerusalem, Right? That's just—it's not going to be it. But God will be worshipped, you know, in spirit and in truth. That's not the deal. So then we begin to see this ideal Jerusalem, right? But the prophets already also talk about it. Isaiah uh, 65. I probably shouldn't read it now because time just gets by so fast, right? Isaiah 65, starting at at 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and for her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then he goes on in one wonderful passage to read. So God is still hanging on to Jerusalem, but it's not the same Jerusalem. It's kind of a transformed Jerusalem, right? Um, then uh, we go on and look then at Revelation 11. 21, sorry, 11's coming later. 21, where we see the transformation of Jerusalem. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Uh, well, now let's go up here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be with them as their God. So Jerusalem is transformed from a rebellious 
place that was temporarily the place where God would, would dwell, his name would dwell, and he would be worshipped. But he would then transform it to be way greater than that, right? And we now are, as the bride of Christ, we are God's dwelling place. The Holy Spirit lives in us. You know, the bride, the new Jerusalem, is the church, right? So completely transformed. So for a while, God's place was in the historical city of Jerusalem. But in Jesus, God secured us as his place, right? All right, so David has secured the city, and now he's ready to go get that ark. Different commentators gave different amounts of time, but I read anywhere from 50 to 92 years. The ark had been in, it says, Bale Judah, which is the, uh, another name for that town that we left it in in 1 Samuel 7, Kiriath-Jerim. It had been there for longer than David was alive, right? But everyone knew it was there, and so he went to get it. All right, so now let's look, let's look at the ark. The ark, the, the, the um, instructions for construction of the ark are in Exodus 25. Did I write that down? I don't think so. Sorry, Exodus 25 is where it's described, the artistry, the magnificence of it. And then God says about it in verse 22, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. All right, what's in there? The Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, manna, right? representing God's revelation, God's chosen mediator, and God's bread, his provision from heaven. Right? It represents the rule and reign of God. I think she goes over that, doesn't she, in the, in the questions in the study? The rule and reign of God and reconciliation with God because the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement went in and made atonement for himself and the people of Israel. So the ark, they didn't know this, but the ark is the prefiguring of Jesus, the, the Messiah, right? Um, so David had pushed back the Philistines and he feels, okay, it's safe to go get that now. We're not going to be threatened by these enemies. Let's go get it, right? And you saw the tragedy that, that happened. God gave very careful instructions in Numbers 4 to only the sons of Kohath, one of the descendants of, of, of Levi, right? They were, the, they were the, to be the ones to take care of the holy things in the temple. They alone were to carry the ark on the poles. It was also supposed to be covered so that it could not be seen. Um, of course, we don't really know what it looks like, but there's a pretty cool-looking picture to get its magnificence, I guess. Um, but it was holy because it represented God's presence. And so it was supposed to be treated in a particular way, and they didn't follow God's direction. They just did what the Philistines had did who don't know how to 
handle God, how to deal with him, how to walk with him, right? And so Uzzah touches the ark, not realizing that his hand is more corrupt than the ground that never rebelled against God, and he is struck dead immediately. God had told them, lest you die, don't touch and don't look in. He told them, and they didn't even bother to look it up. And so Uzzah is struck down, as God, as God said, right? Uh, Charles Simeon said, God had shown himself so gracious and condescending towards that nation that there was great danger lest they should entertain erroneous notions of his character and overlook entirely his majesty and greatness. Indeed, even his condescension itself would be undervalued unless they should be made sensible of his justice, his holiness, and his power. So David, thinking this is a grand celebration, you know, uh, he's, he's rejoicing, that he's excited, and Uzzah is struck dead. And so David's first reaction is anger. What have you done? What have you done? And then he becomes afraid, right? Rather than first considering that he had done something wrong, he raged in his heart against God. Simeon says, uh, Charles Simeon, should he not have concluded that God was too wise to err and too good to do anything that was not strictly right? And then David's fear is not the reverent fear that we are commanded to have before God, but a slavish fear, Simeon says. It's a slavish fear, an utterly unbecoming one who had so often experienced the most signal tokens of his favor. He should rather have instituted an inquiry into the reason of the divine procedure and should have humbled himself before God for the errors that had been committed. When when I was reading this again and again and again, I thought, oh man, I've, I've been mad at God. I've been, I've been really mad at him. I know we all, we all do that. Um, God let my baby girl starve in my belly. And that made me mad at first. But then over time, the, you know, you, you, become, you repent. God can't err. And he's not mean, Right? And then you realize he, he can do with me what he wills. You know, he's too wise and too good to be mistaken. He's holy and he's not to be trifled with. He's good, kind, wise, and loving as well. He had been gracious to these Israelites and he's been gracious to us. He's given us his word so that we will know him. Right? Know our need of him. Know the Savior that he sent for us, right? And he sent us his Holy Spirit so that we can obey him, right? The second attempt after three months to bring the ark in, David obviously, even though the narrator doesn't tell us, David has realized, I think we've made a mistake here. We better get the priest to check the law to find out what we're supposed to do. And so then they transport the ark the way it is supposed to be transported. 
and then uh, one, one of the commentators said that they took six steps and stopped and sacrificed. Six is one short of seven. Perfection, holiness, all of that, right? So David, we see the king humbling himself before the Lord in the sight of the people. He's full of joy, right? And as he's bringing the ark in to the place where God's name would dwell. Did you notice that there was no great inauguration for David or pomp and circumstance and huge celebration? Did you notice that? It's missing because the king of Israel, of of Jerusalem, is God. And David is his shepherd and his prince, as it says, and as the the words of the elders of Israel said in in 5, in chapter 5, right? Um, So then what happens here is David's wife, okay, granted, she had been a pawn of men, right? If I were her, I would have been pretty angry at my whole situation myself, but that doesn't justify necessarily her behavior. She looks at, with scorn on David and his, celebra- his celebration. But um, uh, David, you know, counters her. It was before the Lord that, that I did this. Right. Remember, and it also said three times in there, Michael, the the daughter of Saul, Michael, the daughter of Saul, Michael, the daughter of Saul, so that we would be aware of who this person is, not Michael, the wife of David. She was of the household of Saul. Saul didn't even know God. And Michael doubtlessly did either. Right. Um, And then we see we see the judgment that that happens to her. So is David's style of worship normative for us, right? Should we actually be dancing around like David and, you know, the singing in the instruments? And, of course, he disrobed practically to just the, the linen ephod, which was, a, you know, a priestly garment. Is that normative? Some, some churches actually say yes, right? Uh, we, we obviously don't. <laughs> But maybe, maybe, but, you know, I, I have to admit that I was, I was a little convicted about that. I I am not a very, very much of a feeling emotional type person, but sometimes I really want to raise my hands more when I am singing with all of you in church. So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge us. I mean, Darwin and, and, and. Jacob finally said, okay, look, guys, we're going to raise our hands in the, in the doxology and in the benediction. But don't you sometimes, I mean, I'm also kind of a music person too, so I mean, I'm tapping my foot a lot. And sometimes I would really want to raise my hands, but it's like, no, this is a Presbyterian. You know? But could, could I challenge us to be as delighted as David was? in the presence of the Lord? And can we show each other that we delight in him? We don't have to be, I don't think, disruptive. And I wouldn't want visitors to say, oh my gosh, those people are weird, right? I wouldn't want to provoke any, you know, kind of odd reaction from people. But could we not, 
show each other more. Can I challenge us to, if you feel like raising your hands, let's just, let's do it. Let's show, like I get really excited at football games, you know, or Rangers games or something like that. But I don't get that excited, you know, just worshiping the Lord as we ponder him and his glory and his grace and his mercy and his holiness. Let's, let's do that. Um, just about out of time here, but look, the ark, let's trace that through the rest of the scripture. Um, in Jeremiah 3, uh, let me read this real quickly. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. And at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow evil in their heart. That obviously has not happened yet. Um, The ark was carried off again somewhere, right? Well, actually, when the Babylonians carried it off, I don't think we've ever seen it since then, although Mel was the people in Ethiopia say they have it somewhere, right? Yeah. But you know what? It doesn't matter anymore because the ark is not the place where we meet God anymore. It is Jesus, right? Uh, We see the ark next again in Revelation 11, right? And there, I'm not going to read it because we're out of time. We see that it marks the reign of Jesus and the beginning of judgment as well as reward. So just to finish off, God's place at one point was Jerusalem. God's name dwelt with the Ark of the Covenant, but no more. God's place is now Jesus and his people in Jesus, right? As David delighted in his God, so Jesus delights in his Father. And in Jesus, we can now delight in our God now and forever. Those who don't trust Jesus as God's place will be conquered like the Jebusites and judged like Michael. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this magnificent word to us that Jerusalem is no longer any more significant city than any other city. And thank you that we don't have to have that ark to worship you. Thank you that Jesus has become our place. Through Jesus, we can meet with you. And we don't have to fear your holy breaking forth because he has taken all of your wrath for us. And we can boldly approach your throne 
to worship you, to pray to you for help. Lord, would you just take this lesson and use it to encourage us to proclaim your great name to our families, our friends, and to strangers that we meet out there in the world, our neighbors, whomever you would allow us to encounter. Would you help us use this to proclaim you, Jesus, as God's place? Lord, um, I will just go ahead and pray for the, uh, the salad meal here and ask you to use it to nourish and strengthen our body, use our uh, fellowship time for your glory and our edification. Thank you for uh, everyone's generosity in bringing it. Lord, would you get us safely through these next few days until we can meet together again on Sunday. Through Jesus, our precious Lord, we pray. Amen.